Savannah Hernandez. Savannah, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you. How are you? Doing good. Thanks for having me, Chase. Absolutely. So um, I uh, just noticed you when you came back on Twitter because you blew up. And so I've been uh, perusing through your website and your, your previous work. And I know that uh, Harrison had mentioned you a number of times in the past as well. And um, I'm really excited to talk to you. You have a very impressive uh, resume. And I can't wait to talk about how you got to this point as well as where you're going, because it seems like it's going to be pretty exciting to see what you accomplish. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Excited to talk about it. Glad you were able to find me back on Twitter. I've been banned for the past two years. So, um, you know, that's another testament to why the platform is so important for journalists such like such as myself. Yeah. So what was it like to be banned for two years? Did you just resort to MySpace or what? <laughs> you know, the funny thing about that is I always wanted a MySpace and my mom would never let me have one because she was so strict. So, you know, getting banned on Twitter. I mean, when it first happened, I was shocked and very upset because during that time I was working behind the scenes in production and I was kind of part-time-ish reporting, barely getting into it. And then I started, um, you know, going viral with my clips and my clips started garnering national attention. They were, uh, you know, getting the attention of Fox News. Um, we were getting millions of views. President Donald Trump was retweeting my work. So losing the account was definitely devastating because it was the start of my reporting career. And after the ban, I was like, okay, I guess this means I have to go to Instagram, which I did and sucked because I hate Instagram. But, you know, it kind of worked out because now I have a huge following on Instagram and now I have to Twitter back as well. So what did you do to get banned? So back in 2020, I was covering the Black Lives Matter riots. Um, I mean, the fiery but mostly peaceful rallies that were happening nationwide that somehow cost over, what, $2 billion in damage? Maybe it was just one. Maybe I'm exaggerating there. It was just at least a billion, right? So um, I'm on the ground covering that, and my footage started going viral because, as we all know, the mainstream media was telling us absolute garbage and lies about what was actually happening on the ground. So I was in Washington, D.C. for the Million MAGA March, and I took a pan of the crowd during the day because, you know, we had hundreds of thousands. I'm bad at math, so I don't know how many people were actually there, but it looked like hundreds of thousands of people marching in Washington, D.C., for Donald Trump. This was after the election. This was when, you know, the election was being drawn on past a day. We were at a week at this point. So people were going to rally in DC. So I took a pan of the crowd, beautiful moment. Everyone is singing the Star Spangled Banner in unison. Donald Trump retweets it. Uh, everybody started retweeting this clip. It got about 10 million views. And then a week later, my entire account was banned for, um, Reasons that I had no idea it was just gone. And I, you know, kind of chopped it up to being retweeted by the president. And um, a month later, because I did have a friend who had someone on the inside of Twitter, they came up with the excuse that I was evading a ban, even though that was my only account. Wow. Wow. I wonder if your name's going to come up in the Twitter files as they continue to get released. <laughs> You know what? They might because I actually got banned from Twitter two times after that and the two times after uh, because the reason I got my Twitter back is because I do have a lot of support from my friends in this space, in media. And the second time I got banned was for making national news because I was at the NCAA uh, Women's Swimming Championship back in 2022. 
And I was the one recording Leah Thomas absolutely annihilating all of the women in that championship. I was the one that was on the ground talking to the protesters who were for Leah Thomas, anti-Leah Thomas. I was there and I found the one female athlete that was willing to speak out against a biological male, um, you know, competing against women in this women championship. And it was it was such a, an interesting moment to me because this was probably the first time where I really felt like I was able to use my platform to help this young athlete because the NCAA was telling all of the athletes behind the scenes, do not say Leah Thomas's name to any media members. Do not even say her name in the locker room. So these athletes were basically scared into silence. I found the one athlete who was brave enough to speak to me because it was her teammate who lost her spot in the next round of the championships because Leah Thomas took it. She expressed her anger. Tucker Carlson picked up the clip. It garnered around two, over 2 million views. And then two days later, that account was completely suspended as well. And then, sorry, I'm rambling on here, but third no. time around, I said, okay, you know what? It's clear that the American people like the reporting that I'm putting out because nobody else is really on the ground doing this. So I made a third account. My second account was for my podcast, but then obviously I started using the reporting. I made the third account because I was like, there is zero reason why Twitter even banned me to begin with. I never evaded a ban, so I'm going to keep putting my work out. I went to um, inner city gas stations when Joe Biden was on his Twitter account telling all of us that gas prices were lowering. And I had the inner city communities tell me how they thought Joe Biden was doing as president. Spoiler alert, they thought he was doing horribly, which was, you know, countering the entire mainstream media. That went viral. On top of that, I went to Pride in Washington, D.C., and I got two very important clips. The first one was a naked transgender person, breasts and whatever else exposed, twerking in front of little kids. That clip went viral, got a couple million views, was picked up on almost every single major right-wing news network. On top of that, I uh, conducted an interview with two transgender youths who were telling me that they were they, them, it's, and they were telling me the whole process of starting out as lesbians, going into pansexuals, it being a slippery slope. That also went viral. And then a couple days later, that account was banned as well. So did you always know that you wanted to be a journalist or is this something that you just discovered through these bannings? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? It's, it's something I was always interested in for sure. Um, I did go to school for journalism, but I went to school for uh, public relations, marketing, advertising, and news writing. And then it was in my last six months that I started dabbling in video production and broadcast. I was homeschooled, so I graduated college at 20. So by the time I figured out I liked broadcast, I was graduating. Um, so I never really figured out in university if I really wanted to be a journalist. And then it was, again, just Twitter banning me, me seeing the media consistently lie to us, me working for Alex Jones and Infowars because I was not politically involved at all. And then I kind of, you know, started breaking production for Alex and really woke up to everything that was going on. And so it was this accumulation of lies and the media not doing their job that led me to want to help the American people and show them what's actually going on. How did you get the job for Alex? Did you respond to a Craigslist ad like everybody else there? I have no idea. So I was living at home after <laughs> university with my parents. And I gave myself a one year time frame. I was like, you know what, March 2018, I'm out of the house. If I have to be a server at Cheesecake Factory, oh, well, I'm going to move out. We're going to make it work. 
one week before my deadline, I got a call from this place called InfoWars. Never heard of it in my life. Never heard of Alex Jones in my life. I was throwing my resume at any, anywhere and everywhere I could. So I'd imagine I, you know, accidentally applied. And they were like, look us up. They were still on YouTube at this time. And I was like, okay. So I look them up and I was like, oh, this is probably like two guys in a bedroom. This is kind of weird, but I need a job. So heck yeah, and Austin's a cool place. So I took the job and I started off as a production assistant. And that's how I got my start in politics. Wow. So tell me <laughs> yeah. what you learned. What did you learn working at InfoWars that was, I don't know, helpful to you in creating content that goes viral? Because there's a lot of people that make great content that for some reason or another, they just, it just doesn't, it just doesn't pop for them. Right. And I've had that experience too, where I've made, I've published hundreds and hundreds of hours of content and every once in a while there's, a, there's something that explodes but it's really hard, no matter how intentional you are, to actually make something that, that, that catches on. Right, right. Well, I think that's one of the most important things that Alex taught me was just to be there on the ground when anything's happening. For example, when there was a baby formula shortage, I said, okay, and this is what I was doing my more independent reporting earlier last year when I was just getting my start um, really as an independent reporter. This kind of just happened over the course of the past year because when I was with Alex, I was still working production and then I started getting into reporting and fill-in hosting, but I was kind of doing the best of both worlds. Um, but actually, let me answer your first question. You said, what did I learn while working for Alex? I learned everything. I absolutely love working for him because I started off as a production assistant. I was learning how to switch Alex Jones' show. I was learning the soundboard. I was learning how to edit videos. I was learning how to host a three-hour radio show. Alex let me learn everything and anything that I could there. So it was the perfect environment for someone like myself who was just getting into news really and media and broadcasting i was able to learn anything and everything and you know with alex it's kind of like how hungry are you you go learn whatever you want and i did i i took every opportunity to learn everything from how to produce a show behind the scenes to how to host the show in front of the camera getting into the actual reporting Alex would always be like, you know, if you see a story, just go be the first person on the ground covering it no matter what. So earlier last year when we were having the baby formula shortage, I used that same mentality and I said, okay, I'm just going to go to my local grocery stores and see if there really is a shortage. I went to eight different stores and I just took pans of the empty grocery shelves. I did a simple stand up and I said, hey, uh, you know, I'm here. Clearly, we don't have baby formula. I tried to talk to moms. They weren't that open to speaking to me. So it turned into, I just spoke to a mother who told me she's even had to, uh, you know, basically use a different formula for her baby, even though her baby has uh, a bad stomach because there's no formula here. Tucker Carlson ended up playing that segment on his show that night because I was the only reporter that had gotten that footage. Wow, that is wild. So were you nervous the first time that you did your first three-hour segment on InfoWars? Oh my gosh. I still remember it to this day. It was horrifying. You know, those moments that keep you up at night and you're just in a cold sweat, like so embarrassed that you, you had yes. to live through that. That was me. And it was because I hosted Owen's show, the war room for three hours by myself. It was horrific. It was horrible. The first time I ever had to do InfoWars, Alex put me on for the fourth hour. And like my greatest blessing in life is that InfoWars puts out so much content that it's kind of difficult for you to go find past stuff because the first right. time I was ever on, he put me on in the fourth hour and I was kind of just like, um, you know, uh, bringing in and out the fourth hour guests because Alex was kind of just helping me out and practicing. And I did so horribly. And to this day, it was like the most horrific, embarrassing moment of my life. And media is fun because you kind of have to fail publicly, right? And so I was on the Alex Jones show in the fourth hour, most embarrassing moment of my life. But you know, you have to get through those types of things if you want to be in media. So were you on the ground in Hong Kong? 
I was, I was. Alex asked people in the crew, hey, he wants to go to Hong Kong, big story. I shot my hand up and I said, Alex, you know, I've been following this story for a while just because I was already interested in the Chinese at that point and a little bit of their corruption. And I saw the protests going on in Hong Kong. So I was like, you know, Alex, I've already been following this. I'd love to go. So he sent me straight over there. And it was literally like within the course of two hours of him asking and me being on a plane. It was insane. Wow. So when that Hong Kong protesting was going on, I was um, uh, running Facebook ads for a client who sold uh, bicycle helmets. So that's what I do for my day job is I, I do social media advertising for businesses. And it was crazy because we were doing like $100,000 a month in sales of these bicycle helmets to third world countries where uh, people primarily commute on bicycles. Right. And China shut down the exports of these helmets because they were wary that the helmets would arrive in the hands of the uh, protesters in Hong Kong. Really? That's yeah, interesting. So totally That's ruined my client's but... business. Yeah. So what was it, so what was it like, um, like on the ground there? I mean, were, were, there, were there really American flags everywhere? Like what, what was really going on? Absolutely. It was the one of the most beautiful and iconic moments I've ever experienced. One of the reasons I love being an on-the-ground reporter is because I get to witness history with my own two eyes, and not many people get to say that. Um, when I was in Hong Kong, I watched millions of people in the streets as they were marching. Fun fact, a lot of the um, tactics that Antifa uses here in the United States, they got from the Hong Kongers, such as how to, uh, you know, take a tear gas bomb and put it out before it spreads everywhere or using umbrellas. The umbrella was one of the symbols that the Hong Kongers were using over there. Um, it was a beautiful moment because it, there was such solidarity with the people. I've never seen such a united people as I had in Hong Kong. They were so loving. They were so gracious. They were so open to the media because over there, you know, the Chinese were trying to quell any information about what was happening from getting out. So with American media, they were like, yes, please come tell our story. They were waving the American flag. They were waving Trump flags and they were like, Donald Trump, please come save us and save our real actual democracy, right? Meanwhile, in the United States, just a couple months later, we would have people burning our American flag in the street. So it was a, a very interesting moment. I actually watched them face off against the Chinese police. Um, bricks were whizzing past my head. I was choking on tear gas. And it was in that moment, as I was running with millions of people away from the cops, that I realized I loved this type of reporting and being on the front lines. Wow. So what is it like for you knowing that the Hong Kongers were protesting, waving American flags, and we didn't help them at all. And in Ukraine, they wave Nazi flags, and we give them tens of billions of dollars. I mean, as I've gotten older, I, my, my views on foreign intervention have kind of changed. When I was sure. in Hong Kong, I, I was really sad about what was going on. But keep in mind, too, that the uh, what the Hong Kong people were fighting for at that time was basically... China coming in and taking away their autonomy, which they were already set to do. They were just doing it earlier, which again, it was sad. And I don't like the Chinese. Uh, you know, one of the things that the people were pushing back against were the facial recognition towers over there because in China, they have the implementation of that social credit score. So I really do wish that we could help all of the people worldwide that need it. But also like, as I have seen US intervention, Throughout the decades, historically and presently, I'm like, okay, well, I, I, maybe it's okay that we didn't help Hong Kong. I don't know. I wish we could have. In an ideal world, we would have swooped in. We would have helped the Hong Kong people. But, you know, it's not that simple, sadly. So what are you working on now? 
Right now, I am currently working on anything and everything that interests me. Um, well, probably one of the most popular series that I've focused in on is the drug crisis and homeless crisis that are hitting a lot of Democrat-run cities in America. Over the co course of the past two months, I have hit Portland, Philadelphia, San Francisco. And when I tell you these cities are absolutely horrifying, uh, basically what I do with my reporting style is I say, okay, what is nobody focusing in on that we should be? And then that's what I go report on. Earlier you asked too, and I apologize, I kind of didn't answer this question very properly. You asked, how do you make viral clips? Uh, you know, because you can put out a lot of really high quality content and sometimes it just doesn't stick. Um, that's one of the tactics that I use. I go out and I, I find the issues that are being underreported that are very shocking. And I really go focus in on those. Um, so San Francisco, Portland, and Philadelphia, over the past two months, I've probably gotten around 15 to 20 million views on all of that footage uh, because no one is really going and highlighting the atrocities of the harm prevention centers, which are government funded, mind you, in these areas. And what these harm prevention centers are is centers where they are giving addicts all of the tools that they need to get high from needles to Brillo pads so they can smoke meth. I was in uh, San Francisco with a former addict who is now sober living in San Francisco and trying to bring aware awareness to how difficult it is to live in the city and how horrific it is over there. He went into one of these harm reduction centers. He bring out two bags full of items um, and he was going through each item with me and he was like, yeah, inside the center, they said, this is vitamin C so you can melt down your meth. This is a chopstick, they said, so you could push crack through your pipe more easily. By the way, here's the meth pipe that they gave us. Here's a straw for whatever type of drug you would like. Here's a hundred needles. And um, I asked them where I could go to get help, and they said they had no idea. So that's what's currently going on in a lot of these big progressive cities where you see the homelessness happening, you see the, the drug crisis happening, and people ask the question, how did it get so bad over here? It must just be Democrats. So it's like, well, on top of Democrats, it's also these types of programs that are being pushed by a lot of progressive, loving people. Um, and you know what? That's what I'm trying to fight back against in Austin because we do not have a set location here in Austin yet, but we do have a van that drives around and hands out syringes and needles to the homeless here in our city. Um, and I do believe that these types of programs are the beginning of your city turning into Skid Row, San Francisco, Portland, or uh, Philadelphia. So what do you think the solution is? Go and get it shut down, honestly. Like the community members need to get loud. They need to get angry, just like we did with the homelessness here in Austin. Um, when I moved here back in 2018, it was a beautiful city. There was not homeless the way there is now. And then they passed the open camping ordinance in 2019. And we saw a huge surge of homelessness. We saw people from nationwide coming to Austin, Texas, because we have great weather here. We got 6th Street. You can get free food. You can get free drinks here if you're homeless. Uh, so people were coming to Austin specifically for that. And then and the people didn't like it. We rescinded that order. And now we are, we are seeing those homeless encampments being cleaned up. Now, they, they are still a little bit of a problem here in Austin. But the people got mad and they said, hey, no, we don't want to turn into the next LA. And they pushed back and they got that rescinded. So that was a step in the right direction. So it's really up to the constituents of their community to, you know, keep their, their city pretty and to keep it safe and clean for their children. So what would you say it is that, that drives you to do all this? Obviously, you're very ambitious. I'm curious to know what it is that keeps you um, hustling in, in this space when there's so many other career opportunities and easier things to do that are less controversial and simpler, less alienating. 
Yeah, yeah. I think this is a great question because a lot of people might see my work and say, wow, that's awesome. I would love to go do that. But what they don't see is it does really mentally impact me. When I go to Philly, when I go to San Francisco, when I go to Portland, uh, for example, in the course of two hours when I was in Portland, I watched somebody overdose and I also watched a robbery. Uh, and I watched a bunch of other people shoot up meth and heroin and smoke fentanyl in front of me. It does have a mental impact on me. It's very difficult for me to see. I am a female. I believe in the biological differences between men and women. And it would probably be easier for a man to look at this type of stuff, do this type of work. But um, again, what drives me to do it is the fact that nobody else really is. There are a small subset of independent reporters that are doing this work. But unfortunately, their work isn't getting the notoriety it is. So I really do feel like I've been blessed with the platform. I have been blessed with... Uh, people who like my work, who like my voice and like what I do. And so I feel like I have a responsibility to prop up other independent reporters that are doing similar work. And I have a responsibility to the American people to show them what's going on because their own media refuses to, not only refuses to do it, but actively works against them in, in showing them what's happening. Why do you think it is that uh, journalists and reporters who work for traditional sort of legacy outlets aren't, um, covering these stories is it because they just have sort of these cush jobs and they don't want to they don't want to get their hands dirty or, or what is it well i think that's what it is i think that a lot of government officials and politicians work hand in hand and are buddy buddy with members of the media and we have this entire system for example with the harm prevention centers or harm reduction centers so they're called the the majority of their funding comes from the government and the more investigation I've done into this, the more I've realized that the government continues to fund drug addiction so that way they can keep drug addiction enabled and they can keep funding it. So this is like the government perpetuating a problem that they can profit off of. Now, I feel like the media kind of overlooks this because they would have to legitimately call out Democratic politicians. They would legitimately have to call out government corruption and try to make a change in these cities. And to be quite honest with you, if you look at the history of our media and what they've been a part of, what they've done, they truly have been a propaganda arm of the government for years. Um, I feel like they're a part of a destabilization plan and subversion of the United States. You know, Yuri Bezmanov, who was a previous KGB defector, talked about how you can subvert an entire nation and it takes generations and look at where we're currently at. So I don't know, maybe this goes into the education system of Harvard and Stanford and a lot of our New York Times prestigious reporters coming out of these institutions that have the Confucius Institute in them or have these other types of progressive ideologies that have been instilled into the next generation to subvert our entire country. I mean, there's a multitude of reasons why this might be, but there's just a couple off the top of my head. Wow, that's fascinating. So you think, it, you think there's an intentional effort to neutralize the American people or weaken or make vulnerable the, the American people with drugs? Or, or, or do you think that it's more just these, these sort of clinic owners and contractors that run these facilities lobbying the, the cities for, for funding and, and sort of exacerbating the problem similar to how the military industrial complex did during the Cold War? 
I think it's a combination of both. I've always said that the United States is a very strong country. So in order to destroy us, we basically have to be Trojan horse and destroy from within, which is what is currently happening. China's been playing the long game with us. You know, everybody's been so focused in on Russia, Russia, Russia as our main enemy. Meanwhile, China has been subverting us for years. Where is all the fentanyl that is killing a record number of Americans coming from? It's coming from China. You know, China dealt with the opium wars. We're dealing essentially with the same thing, except right now with fentanyl. China has come in and they have um, infiltrated Hollywood. They have infiltrated sports. They have infiltrated our education system. And I feel like they have subverted an entire generation um, via these long form methods. And look at where we're currently at as a country. Um, going back to what you said, though, too, about the government, I think that also comes into play. Now, a lot of people, like I'm very anti-government to the point where I'm like, I truly believe that the federal government doesn't not only doesn't work for the American people, but actively works against us. And I think we've seen that in a multitude of ways. Um, so for example, you know, in San Francisco, you have a city council member who's buddy buddy with the mayor. They wanna make a couple mil. So they'll go open up a program to help with homelessness, but they're pocketing the majority of that money. And also simultaneously uh, continuing on the problem of homelessness by not really helping the homeless people, but instead enabling them to continue to be homeless by giving them tools for their drug addiction, by giving them food, shelter, medical supplies, everything they need to stay on the streets and stay homeless. And then these you know, various former city officials are pocketing that money. And then it's just like this big money-making scheme for everybody involved in so speaking of China, do you use TikTok? I do not. I don't use TikTok. And that's specifically because I don't want China to have my data. So it's not on my phone. And also, too, I, I think it's uh, no, I don't think it, it is psychological warfare. Uh, TikTok is psychological warfare, and I do not want to take any part of it. Granted, my footage does very well on there. People repost it all the time on TikTok, and it goes super viral. So I probably should be on there, but I'm not, and I don't actively watch them. <laughs> that makes sense to me. I, you know, I, I for a long time I was reluctant to use TikTok, and then I I decided that all the platforms were communist, so I might as well True. be on. <laughs> you know, but I understand with the, with the data mining and stuff. But I don't know. I just I don't have anything. I don't do anything that I would care whether or not the the CCP knows knows about. And so I think it's a, definitely a problem, especially yeah. for like government officials. And I think it's certainly a problem for our youth. I think a lot of this. Um, a lot of the gender issues that we're facing, for lack of a, a more explicit term, just because we're on YouTube, uh, come stem from TikTok. And I think that it, it's, it's a tool that, that either intentionally or accidentally exaggerates the prominence of um, uncommon behavior or psychology and mm -hmm. sort of puts in the minds of children that these things are much more common or, or, or normalizes them to, the extent that, to a greater extent than they are actually normal. Exactly. And two, we can always point to going back to the Chinese subverting the United States of America. Look at what Chinese TikTok is feeding Chinese youth versus what Chinese TikTok is feeding American youth. If you look at what the Chinese youth are shown, it is uh, patriotic videos. It's videos about museums, science, cool experiments you can do at home. Um, if you go and you look at the Chinese youth, they want to be astronauts. They want to be doctors. And this is a large part in what the youth is being shown. You come over to the United States and they are shown 
all of this degeneracy, right? They're shown, hey, this is how much money you can make on OnlyFans. This is a sexual dance that you can do. Here's a new gender. Abortion is cool and great. Masculinity is horrific and toxic. Being a mom sucks. And then if you, if you ask the average American youth what they want to grow up to be, it's like a YouTuber or a social media influencer. Mm. So you can really see the impact that this type of social media platform has had on the youth. On top of that, none of our youth have an attention span anymore. And that is in large part due to TikTok deteriorating their ability to focus because the videos are so short. And it's kind of, you know, a lot of people have compared TikTok to like Las Vegas and these gambling machines, right? Like they keep you addicted and they keep you um, stuck to them because it's like this constant dopamine hit. And that's essentially what TikTok is for the youth. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So what advice would you give a young sort of conservative minded person who wants to establish a, a voice on social media, but has no idea where to start? I would say just, Speak your mind. Don't be afraid to say anything. Don't be afraid to be controversial because keep in mind that being controversial in 2023 is just being a normal person with common sense 20 years ago. Um, don't be afraid to call things out in society that you see are wrong. Don't be afraid to stand up in class and say, hey, I don't want to be asked about my pronouns because I'm clearly a boy. She's clearly a girl and this is ridiculous. You know, make those stance and push back against everything that the mainstream is trying to push down our throats. So I think that um, regarding social media, one of the good ways to do that is to, you know, just speak your mind. But I think like social media aside, don't worry about social media. I think that's another big thing too. It's like, um, I noticed the issue in the conservative space that a lot of people are genuinely just chasing fame, fortune, and clout. Like this isn't sure. just an issue on the left. A lot of right-wing people too want to just be conservative influencers. I honestly get insulted when someone calls me an influencer because I'm like, look, I'm not here to influence. I'm here to actually make a change and I'm here to report what's actually going on. So if you go into this space with a mindset that you want to make a legitimate change, whether or not your content goes viral, uh, because keep in mind, Chase, I've been doing this for five years at this point, and my stuff started picking up steam maybe like two, three years ago, Like I've had hits here and there, but it really was a long process of not caring about whether or not my clips went viral, not caring whether or not people saw the work, but just knowing that it was important and going out and doing it. And then people will see that they'll see your passion and they'll see that you genuinely care about the issue. And you know, that type of organic growth happens that way. So given the sort of current climate of social media and censorship and the trajectory that we seem to be going as a culture, where do you envision freedom of speech and social media being in 10 years? Like if you had to guess, and I know that's an impossible question to answer, but if you had to guess where things would be in 10 years, what would you say? Sadly, I don't see us heading in a positive direction. And I say that because we're already seeing the manipulation and redefinition of our language right before our very eyes. And we're really not seeing that much of a pushback to it. I mean, we've accepted the pronouns. We've accepted the 38 million genders that one can have. Uh, I really do feel like the United States and America has been conquered. We've been conquered by woke propaganda. We've been conquered by the Chinese. Uh, you're not allowed to be patriotic anymore. You're not allowed to be an American nationalist that has been so demonized to the point where, you know, if you say you're a nationalist, you're immediately deemed a white supremacist. When if you look at the definition of that term and of what it means, it really just truly means that caring about your nation, caring about your country, being patriotic, all of that has been so demonized. So regarding freedom of speech in the next decade, I think we can look to other countries like 
New Zealand or the UK or Canada for what could be coming to the United States because we have coddled this generation so much and told them that words are violence. Now you go to the UK and you can be arrested if you hurt somebody's feelings. You can be detained for speaking out against the LGBTQ community or misgendering somebody. So I think that's what's headed to the United States if we don't wake up and start pushing back against this. And that's what needs to happen. People are so afraid of getting canceled, of hurting somebody's feelings, that they don't want to stand up and say, hey, no, I'm not adhering to this. It's ridiculous. It's not scientific. We never did this in the history of ever. So let's not start now. Uh, but the average person Again, you know, it was bought and paid for. They're afraid to lose their job. Look at what happened over the past two years with COVID-19. A lot of people bent the knee and they got the vaccination because they were afraid to lose their job. And look, that's not an easy thing to do. I get it. But also, I feel like um, that was a big test about yeah. how much people would be willing to give up. And sadly, the masses are willing to give up a lot. So you don't think that Elon Musk is going to be the savior of free speech on, on the Internet? I mean, he might be. I think we're headed in a positive direction with Twitter, but I think because Elon is allowing freedom of speech on Twitter, this is just going to mean that the government is going to try to come down even harder and crack down on our ability to access information, to talk freely, to discuss freely. I, I think, uh, you know, history and society is like a pendulum, right? I feel like we were in the very far insane left for such a long time. And I feel like now we're kind of getting back to the middle or maybe even more to the right with us taking back the house, Republicans taking back the house with Elon Musk taking over Twitter. I think that we are going to start seeing changes in the right direction, but we have to keep the uh, motion going. We have to keep that happening because if we stop now, you know, like I said, in 10 years, we could become the UK. That, that's kind of my worst case scenario. I always plan for the worst. So that way, when it doesn't happen, I'm pleasantly su surprised. Um, but, you know, hopefully we don't get to that point. So where can people find you, follow your story as well as the work that you're doing? They can follow me on Twitter again, at Sav underscore says on YouTube and Rumble at Sav says you can follow me on Instagram at Sab with one N or my website, SabSaysOfficial.com. I'm also a writer for The Post Millennial. Um, you can find my work there. My articles are on my website. So, um, yeah, go check out all that stuff. Well, it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the uh, One American Podcast. I hope that you'll come back and join us again sometime and uh, let us know how things are going. I look forward to seeing what more work you'll do this year. I'm, I'm very excited to see um, what you discover and um, – how, how, how much of an impact it has. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great time. Absolutely. Take care.